And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast. It's Tuesday. It's snowing. I already laid the track for sledding in my backyard, so I've done my dadding for the day. All-Star break is coming up. Trade deadline is over, and now it's time to really sink into the basketball. We got about 30 games left. Seedings and playoff matchups will come into formation soon. Get a little clarity. Big questions are going to be answered. The teams are now essentially fully formed. It's time to focus on the hoops. If you want to learn about basketball, this is one of the guys to go to. One half of the Dunker Spot podcast. A regular guest on JJ Reddick's Old Man in the Three, Steve Jones Jr. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling great. Uh, I will not disclose that it's a sunny day in Texas, but salute on the sledding. Sledding's a good time. I'm not a ski guy. I'm a sled guy. Uh, so I said, I want I want to go, like, let's zoom way out. Trade deadline's over. The minutia, we've dug through it already. Now it's time to look forward, see how the new pieces fit, see what storylines develop. And I said, I want you to prepare your four or five biggest questions for the rest of the NBA season going into the playoffs. And I did mine too. I am going to be a selfish host and start off because I want to get your take on my Number one, biggest question for the rest of the season. Are you ready? I'm ready. I think this is the biggest question in the entire NBA for the next 30 games. How good exactly are the Milwaukee Bucks? What is this team, which is ninth in net rating, ninth in net rating, after shellacking the Denver Nuggets at home last night? We're taping this Tuesday afternoon. They play again tonight against the Heat. Uh, the Nuggets, by the way, are down to 10th in that rating. We'll talk a little bit about them and if you're a little worried about them at all. Um, but the Bucks are 35-19, and 19, third in the East, with Joel Embiid's injury and all the health issues in New York. There's a window for them to get up to two. Cleveland's making it an uphill battle. We're going to talk about the Cavs with Chris Fedor soon. Um, I think you can agree, Steve, it's been... A little raggedy for the Milwaukee Bucks in the Damian Lillard, Giannis Antetokounmpo era. We've had some cranky press conferences, a coach fired, a new coach that got off to a 1-4 and four start after being an ESPN announcer for a hot second. Uh, the Dame-Giannis chemistry hasn't come along as quickly as we thought. The defense has been somewhere between a disaster and a tire fire, depending on where you rank those two uh, natural or whatever occurrences. Um, but here we are. They are 35-19. and 19. They are something like plus 15 per 100 possessions with their four best players on the floor. Dame, Giannis, Middleton, Lopez. That's the skeleton of something. Amid all the chaos and all the whatever, that stuff is over. Now it's time to coalesce into a team. Into a team that can, can we think do we think they can win the title. What are you watching for from the Bucks? They just acquired Pat Beverly. Um, where are you on this team? With me on the Bucks, I have firmly been in. I, they're good. Giannis is very good. Dame is very good. Can they start to find the little things defensively? Can we clean up the transition defense in the half court? Can we keep the ball in front? Can we show early help? That's where I think the Patrick Beverly signing helps. That's where I think adding Doc Rivers helps. Because the one thing I've noticed, way more decisive defensively during this stretch. Even if the results have been uneven, you've seen more of we're going to double against Dallas. And we're going to rotate behind that. We're going to switch and we're going to show help. We're going to be able to keep things in front. Even in that Denver game, they ended up winning. Their mindset at first was we're switching it's Jokic, which sounded and looked great until you realized, oh, that's Malik Beasley by himself guarding Nikola Jokic. We can't do that anymore. Let's stop doing that. And so I think having that mindset defensively ultimately will help them. 
And the offense has not really been the issue. I think nope. the big key for me has been Giannis has looked very locked in during this stretch post uh, coaching move. I think you've seen him return to form with his weak side rotations and his help defense. I think that's so important for Milwaukee. And being able to craft these lineups where Giannis is actually allowed to roam a little bit more as opposed to being in the action is key. For me, it's just does I think Milwaukee can clean it up. Do they have enough? to go through the playoffs with this version of their team? Do they have enough defense to give their offense wiggle room? I think that's the the landing spot they have to get to. You, you know, when they traded Dame for Drew, which despite all the things that have happened since, is still a trade I think I would make if I were them. Even, even though you had no control over where Drew Holiday ended up and he ended up going to the worst possible place for the Milwaukee Bucks, I still think the prior version of this team had run its course and needed something to bring in some oxygen on offense and some clarity on offense. And Dame has brought oxygen, not as much clarity as I had thought would happen just in terms of like, okay, here's a ready-made best two-man game in the league. It hasn't quite been that. You see glimpses of it, but it's 10, 11, 12 pick and rolls a game, not 30. And there's a million reasons for that that we can get into if you want. But um, I, I, I was a little. I thought just Giannis and Brooke would be enough for this team to be twelfth in defense, fourteenth in defense. That, that having two guys who have been an annual first team, second team, all defense conversation kind of guys would be enough, and it hasn't been. The perimeter defense hasn't been good enough. The transition defense has been horrible. Doc has already gotten that in in order. I think you see the transition defense has gotten a lot better, and you know. I don't know, man. As long as they have those two dudes and as long as they have Giannis and a good supporting cast and you know Chris Middleton, his minutes have been ramping up. He, he didn't play last night against Denver. Crowder starting to look a little Crowdery. Um, I like the Pat Bev addition. I, you know, we haven't seen a lot of him next to Lillard, at really, if at all, maybe a couple minutes and that's it. So far, I'm interested to see if he can kind of butt his way into the closing lineup in some scenarios. You know... Connaughton hasn't really been great. He's just been okay. Portis has been pretty good. AJ Green, Derry Bird, as Marcus, <laughs> as Marcus Johnson calls him, has been giving him good minutes off the bench. The other young guys don't play. I don't know. I I don't. I. It's just been so such a strange season, and yet I still think this team can win the title. I, I I'm not going to pick them, but I I think they can. But I think in these next 20, 20 games, let's say. They've got to give me three weeks where they just look consistently really good, mm. where there isn't a horrible loss, where there isn't like we just let go of the rope on defense, where there isn't a cranky press conference. Just give me like three weeks of, hey, we're just a really good team trending the right way. That's what I want to see. I see. Can I ask one question on Dame and Giannis and pick and roll? Absolutely. Where are you at with that? Because are we at the they need to run it more stage or the, hey, what's going on? when these two are in action together stage, because it feels like the timing is off sometimes where Giannis is looking to screen, Dame's looking to snake. Now Giannis rolls into Dame and those kind of things happen. Collisions, the, the pick and roll collision. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still am on the, I think they should run it more. Um, I think they should run the inverted version of it more, which is to say more than never. They just don't ever <laughs> run it. Um, and I, I get all the reasons why they're not running a more number one. I don't think Giannis wants to set 
30 and 35 ball screens a game. Maybe that changes in the conference finals or the finals if they get there. And it's just like, we got to all do whatever it takes to win. And I have Middleton over here and I'll set 15 for him. Cause I really trust him as a pick and roll ball handler. We've got a ton of chemistry. He throws me lobs. I dunk him. It's great. Um, and I think they realized right away when we do run this two man game, they're going to blitz Dame and four dudes are going to be waiting for Giannis in the paint before he even catches the ball. And you're just going to have to kick it out a lot of the time to Brooke and Crowder and Beasley and Middleton. And those are all good options. Like I'm, I think those are mostly good shots. If I can get a contested Jay Crowder above the break three as a defense, that's good for me. A contested Brooke Lopez above the break free three. I can live with that of all the options. The other ones are pretty dangerous shots. I just think there's, I just wonder, like, those are two superstar players, two guys who have been first, second team, all NBA level players. They want to finish possessions and start possessions. And so I wonder if that becomes an irritant for them. Like, I mean, I, I got to kick it out again. And I don't know. I, but I do think it needs to be run more. What do you think? Answer your own question. I think I'm at the point where I like the fact that Milwaukee has a base and they don't have to rely on that to open things up for them offensively. I think there's value in that and being able to generate quality shots for Beasley, for Brooke Lopez. I think that's a plus. I do wonder if they can now tap into it come playoff time or in the buildup to the playoffs to where now it's not just we're good in the fourth quarters. You also have to deal with this. and We can guarantee ourselves a good shot. Like, is that the magic behind it? I just kind of want to see more of the chemistry come between it. And I honestly, I'd like more off ball screens between them. Get back to the elbow action. Have Dame scream for Giannis that way. Put pressure on teams that way. I just think it's such an, an easy way to open things up. Honestly, they did that in the preseason a few times, and I remember highlighting it on video like, oh, my God, a Dame back screen for Giannis at the at the elbow got an alley-oop or got a Dame a three because everybody went with Giannis. And they just haven't done that. And I, it's one of those things as someone who's never played or coached in the league, I'm sure there are reasons for that. It's not like the coaches are – dumb and don't realize those things are good they all know those things are good and they don't happen so there must be a reason for it but man I think it's not that we've all missed the forest for the trees because the, the the trees have been a mess and they've been falling all over the place and making loud noises and they've been worth paying attention to I just think there is a really great team in here somewhere and it's time to see it now. Like, the drama's over. The roster is what it is. You got one semi-helpful player, which is really all you could get with what you had. And it's time to put some good wins together. And last night against Denver, I know no KCP. Jamal Murray left after 18 minutes. They were already rolling Denver when those guys were in the game. That was a good win. And they rolled Boston a few weeks ago by 30-something at home. You know, Missoula pulled the starters after halftime. Give me, give me some more of that because I'm... This this team could get scary if if it starts to click. Give me your first big question. <sighs> Who on earth wins the Western Conference? Well, that's a good timely question. Exp <laughs> expound upon the question for uh, me. Uh, the reason why I put that down, so I looked, and as of right now, all of the top 10 in the West have either won six of their last 10 games or seven of their last 10 games, and you have this pack up front of the top four where a game and a half separates Denver from Minnesota. And then you have a game that separates New Orleans at five from eight, Dallas at eight. And I, my mind goes to home court advantage and how important that is. But the all top four of the West seeds have won 75% or better of their home games. And I'm trying to balance what do I do with a Minnesota team that has Rudy Gobert playing at this level defensively, looking better in space, Anthony Edwards developing the playmaking, Cat 
hitting threes, cutting on the perimeter, punishing teams when they want to switch, but also being concerned about them facing switches. And then there's OKC with their style of play and their drives, their guard-to-guard screens, and Shea driving all over the place. But is their defense and shooting going to hold up? And then there's Denver, who's Denver, and Nikola Jokic, and the defensive versatility that they've found that I don't think gets highlighted enough. And the fact that when it's winning time, hey, Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, Aaron Gordon, you guys three run action, we're going to put pressure on teams. And then the Clippers that have been incredible. Is this just Denver's conference? Are they just lying in wait right now? So this is a very timely question because Denver um, has just kind of been eh for the last three to four. Ever since that Boston win, which was a landmark win, and they did beat the Bucks in, in Denver in Doc Rivers' debut, they've been a little up and down. They're 10th in net rating in the NBA, 10th. Like that's like, ooh, that <laughs> seems low. Now, their starters have about the same net rating as they did last year, plus 12. Murray, Jokic, same net rating as last year, plus 12. Jokic's, Jokic's net rating is down. It's only plus 9. That's a little, you know, their bench we know has been a little shaky. Um, and also last night, one of the statement wins of the season, Minnesota, who hasn't been up and down, but it seems like every loss is kind of like a, oh, God, a crunch time meltdown again, like red flag kind of loss. Went into L.A. with the number one seed in the West on the line and just romped the Clippers in the second half and romped them in a way that felt like proof of concept for this team in particular. It felt like an exorcism of all the demons for Rudy Gobert because the Timberwolves are gigantic and the Clippers went small, five out, no center, and we've seen the Clippers go small, five out, no center against Rudy Gobert. And we've seen that essentially end a team in Utah and end Rudy Gobert's reputation for a prolonged period of time. And the Wolves are like, hey, that's cool. Um, we're just going to be big and get every offensive rebound. And Rudy Gobert is going to dunk in Kawhi Leonard's face in the second half of the game. And we're going to bully your asses out of the gym. One of the most impressive wins of the season for any team in the whole NBA and the Wolves are now first. The Nuggets are fourth. And you tiered it the right way. We got the top four. And one of my big questions is, are we at all worried about Denver slash how important is home court advantage? Because I think this is one of the biggest storylines in the West the rest of the way. That number one seed was very important for the Nuggets last year. They are the best home team in the NBA. I don't think they're taking it for granted, but I also don't think they've been in fifth gear for a most of the season. I think they've been in like second or third year. Then you have four teams for the last two spots in the guaranteed playoff bracket. New Orleans, which is like good luck figuring out whatever the hell they are. (laughs) Phoenix, okay, can you show us now? Sacramento did nothing at the trade deadline. I was actually fine with that. I'm actually relieved that Sacramento did nothing at the trade deadline. I know their fans are furious. I would love them to name me the move that they wanted to make. Uh, Dallas, who totally remade their roster and is on a five-game winning streak. Those Two of those teams are going to be in the play-in, and two of them are likely going to be in the playoffs, unless the next tier of teams, the Warriors and the Lakers, <laughs> have found something in the last couple, particularly the Warriors have won five in a row. The Lakers are starting to play better. They're creeping, creeping up, creeping up, and then Utah and Houston below them have both fallen off. Pretty likely, I think we have our top 10 in the West, but let's start at the top. 
and the who's going to win the West question and the home court advantage question. I'm going to start with the Nuggets. Are you at all worried about the Nuggets who have fallen to fourth in the standings, 10th in net rating? And I was just having a conversation about this with an executive on another team yesterday. He said, you know, I just think they just lost too much from last year's team. They lost too much from last year. I was like, what did they lose? They lost Bruce Brown. Like, I know they lost Jeff Green, but like functionally they lost Bruce Brown, who, who by the way, kind of hasn't done much this year away from the Jokic Nirvana. Um, and, and I understand, like, he was huge for them last year. Huge. But I always just felt like like Peyton Watson's starting to play better and make shots. And I like I have faith in Christian Brown. Reggie Jackson's been good off the bench. Like, I, I just felt like they had enough. And yet, absent a couple of big sort of statement wins, like in Boston, that was a big win. I don't, I, are you worried at all? I'm not worried about them in the playoffs. One, because I don't know which team out West truly has an answer for Nikola Jokic. I think that changes the math. I think Jamal Murray and being able to be so good in so many different ways also helps. I also think when they get to the point of the playoffs, and we've seen it mixed in against some of these contenders, a couple of the highlight wins you mentioned, Aaron Gordon just becomes the backup five. And yes. now we're just mixing and matching and able to kind of hurt you that way and either keep it even or win those minutes. And now Jokic comes back. So I'm not traditionally worried. And I honestly feel better about their defense this year than I did last year, as far as being able to mix in, Hey, Nikola Jokic, you can mix in your drop. You don't have to be at the level. Every time you might switch every now and then we'll show help, but you might switch. You guard a non-shooter and you roam being able to just throw in. That was the biggest thing they did in the regular season last year was tell was somehow convinced Jokic, hey, this whole like you're up at the level of the screen every single time, I know you like it, and sometimes it works, and your hands are unbelievable, and you get steals and deflections. Like, we got to do some other stuff because we can't win four straight playoff series like this. And they convinced him. And if you look, look back at that first-round series against Minnesota, he dropped a lot in that series. And I like when they put him on non- I, to, to, I The diversity is like... It's been an underplayed storyline of the Nuggets because it's boring and wonky and X's and O's. It's a big, big deal that they that they did what you explained. And that's where I kind of think that they still have a path towards that. Someone has to beat them. You have to go beat Denver. So I'm not as concerned in a playoff context. I guess for me, it's how bad do they need the one seed to make this work is more where I'm at. Well, well, look, I mean, it also depends, like, where you end up. If you're not the one seed, are you two? Are you four? If you're four, are you going to have to face the fully souped-up Phoenix Suns in the first round? Because that seems crappy. Like, I know the Dem- I know Denver beat them last year. But if I can just not play Durant and Booker in a playoff series, like, I'd, I would love to just avoid that. Um and and the Suns signed Thaddeus Young today. I don't know if that does anything for you. Do you like the Royce O'Neal acquisition for the Suns? I assume you do. I do a lot. Defensive versatility. They're always trying to find that fifth man. I think his ability to guard multiple positions, help them on ball, off ball, I think that's a major plus as they try and figure out, okay, who can we put alongside these three to make this work? Can we mix in some Katie at the five lineup? So I like Royce O'Neal's fit. I just think he's it's really good value for them as far as like we can trust him to do things on both ends of the floor. For the ones who get it done, 
Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's just do the Suns now because that's one of my other big questions. They're sort of like, they're not at all similar in terms of their history together or their collective accomplishments together or whatever. But they're kind of my Bucks equivalent in the West where it's like, it's kind of put up or shut up time now. And like, how good actually are you? Like, the noise is over. Trade deadline's over. Beal's healthy. You're starting to get a sample size of the whole team together. The numbers with the three best guys on the floor are dynamite. You know, Nurkic has been healthy. And yet they're sitting here 31 and 22. Um, good. You haven't quite got the sense that this is like a dynamite championship level team yet stretches here stretches there is there is there that kind of team in here like what what do you what do you just what's your gut on the suns and what are they missing in terms of like when you watch them what 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 feels short to you i wish that they would lean into more of their movement with their best players and keep their tempo up and lean into the versatility and be able to let bradley beal pass and cut let kevin durant come off option screens use Devin Booker off handoffs and lean into that. My problem with Phoenix is those games where they like shot making is part of the program for them. It just has to be, they're going to take and make those kind of shots when they lean into too much ISO and pick and roll. I think you let the defense off the hook to a degree and their defense hasn't hit the right note for me to really believe in it in a playoff context. Like I would like them for them to just be a little bit better. Like, I'm a, I've been nicer to Nurk than most people defensively. It hasn't felt like it's hit on that end. So that's where I feel like it's missing. I think Nurk's been good, but <gasps> I, 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 I like good. Like I was, I was totally wrong on the Aiton Nurkic de facto swap. I thought it was pretty risky for the Suns, even knowing all the toxicity that was in Phoenix with Aiton and just how everybody needed to wash their hands of the whole thing. I just didn't trust Nurkic's health. Uh, I don't like trading younger for older if I if the talent is roughly equivalent. Aiton can't get out of his own way in Portland. Like every time they put a microphone in front of him, he says something regrettable. And Nurkic has been pretty reliable. And yet I I I dis, I don't use this word in the way most people use it. Cause they're not they're not soft like they're soft willed or weak or anything like that. It just doesn't feel they're they come off as soft to me in the sense that it just doesn't feel like opposing offenses are all that worried about oh god we got to face the Phoenix Suns defense like this is going to be a battle we're going to get some sharp elbows you know they're really going to make us feel them it just doesn't they just feel a little bit 
soft isn't the right word, just a little bit small and a little bit non-threatening on defense in a way that makes me nervous. Nah, I, I'm with that. I, I am with that. But th- is the trade-off there offensively? We're it having to, to be. deal with those, be. those three in a playoff series doesn't seem ideal. Well, book is uh, books. You know, to your point about the motion and the handoffs, and like this is what all the X's and O's nerds want is like, can you run this and more of this and less of that ISO stuff? You watch that Warriors game uh, from over the weekend, that epic Warriors game. Um, like, and book is cooking down the stretch of that game, one on one shot after one on one shot. You are, watch Durant on those possessions. Durant is doing nothing. Like, he's standing in the right corner, not moving, doing nothing, which is like, if Book is cooking like that, that's cool. Um, but I I don't know. It's just something I'm watching because I don't know that Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant wants to win, and when Devin Booker's shots go in, you'll see a fist pump and all that. But I, I don't know how psyched Kevin Durant is to just be chilling over there watching the Devin Booker show. Um but boy, to your point, like I, if you told me this team was in the finals, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I mean, I guess I'd be at this point, I'd be mildly surprised if they won three playoff series in the West. But I would never count any team with KD and Book. I would never count out. No, nah, it's just when when they start to dip into we get a mismatch, you have to double, and oh yeah, that's Devin Booker and Bradley Beal over there next to each other against a rotating defense. They have like the high notes they can hit offensively are where I can't let them go especially in a playoff context. That's just a lot to deal with. I mean, I thought they were going to take Denver to to the hilt last year in the playoffs, and I was surprised. I mean, they folded again. That's what they've They've had two straight seasons of just totally embarrassing fold jobs in game six of the same round, and um, we'll see what they do this year. But I wouldn't – a lot of it is Beal. Like, how good is Beal? Is Beal is, – and I think Beal's pretty, pretty damn good. I like the Royce O'Neal signing. Just it, it's the same with the Bucks. Like, I just kind of want to see it now. Like it's time. Show me it for twenty twenty five games that you can be in the conversation with these four teams above you in the standings, all of whom are good enough to make the finals. Uh, give me another. What you know? What before we leave the West? You just brought up who wins the West. Let's talk about the Lakers and the Warriors. Ah, <laughs> are you starting to believe in either or both? as like legitimate threats to win one or two playoff rounds. Ooh. If they if they get there cuz step 1 for them to be clear is like get out of the 9-10 bracket in the Western Conference play-in where they would eliminate one would eliminate the other right now in the first play-in game. Which uh by the way, it'd be very interesting if we did end up with the world's greatest play-in of Phoenix, Dallas, LA and Golden State. But that's for a different day. I would probably Ooh. right. <laughs> Think about that. Oh my god! I wouldn't doubt them in that setting. I I wouldn't doubt them in that setting. The question for me would be: Is do they have enough? Which seems wild, considering one team has LeBron and AD, the other one has Steph Curry, and is the Warriors. It's a tough series. It's a tough series. It's it's going six or seven. No, I'm talking about like could could they? Oh, you're. I, I'm talking about. Like, do you believe in them? Could they? If they get in, could they win one or two actual playoff rounds? Could we see them in the conference semifinals or the conference finals? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yep. I could. I could. Uh, I could see him. 
star power, playoff game plan. Inexperience at the top of the West in a, in a couple of cases. It it seems wild. It's no disrespect to Minnesota KC, but hey, if you you have a lineup where you can switch against Minnesota, do you bog them down? Uh, are you able to mess around against OKC and show help off certain players and, and and try and contain the drives? Hope you get the whistle in the playoffs. I could see it. I could see them winning a round. A round is fine. When we start talking about two rounds, you you got to be consistently really good against elite competition for quite a number of games and like maybe they can do it i mean the lakers i'm looking now have won four out of five um including kind of landmark for them road wins at boston at new york at boston obviously was without ad and lebron kind of an alarming loss for the celtics old news at this point um what do what do the lakers have going for them what's changed what's changed recently what why are they why do they look like a more cohesive team right now I think the pathways are easier for them lineup-wise. I think that when you look at them, they have size and length, and they're able to when they are able to just put their lineups together and let guys play. And D'Angelo Russell is out there making plays, and Austin Reeves feels more comfortable. Anthony Davis has been incredible on both ends of the floor, and you have LeBron. I think you can build the boat around that a little bit easier. And I think even the moments where they played Denver and lost, they were competitive. Being able to show that activity defensively, I think, helps them. So that's where I kind of buy into that a little bit. For Golden State, they've been Draymond at the five has been really fun to watch, as well as Clay figuring it out, which is a very odd dynamic of Clay being extremely vulnerable and also still figuring this part out to where, yeah, yeah, I'll find a different role. I'll make some shots. We'll be fine. I just. Do you believe in either one of them? Look, I don't think either one can win a championship. Okay. I would be surprised if either one were in the conference finals. Mildly surprised. Just because like the level of consistency you need to get there is so high, and these teams have not demonstrated it yet. But I will not count them out. As for the Lakers, I have been begging all year for them to play Hachimura more and saying on this podcast over and over again, like an idiot that their best four man combination of players is the two stars Reeves and Hachimura. I just like the defensive versatility. I know it doesn't, it's a, it's not as quick on the perimeter maybe as you'd like. They are starting those four now. And after a slow start to the season, they're plus four per 100 possessions with those four together on the floor. I just think they need to lean all the way into that. By the way, Kind of slid under the radar after in the aftermath of. I guess it didn't slide under the radar because Spencer Dinwiddie like went on a, a whole like I'm gonna just start attending games everywhere <laughs> and hanging out with people whose teams I want to be on. I, maybe I'm. You know, we all do this with like one waiver signing, post waiver signing every year. We blow it up out of proportion. I think Dinwiddie could really help the Lakers, and like I, I just think. Look, the Brooklyn thing, something was going wrong in Brooklyn, and he just wasn't engaged in the way that he needs to be engaged, and they weren't engaging him in the way that maybe he wanted to be engaged, whatever. Something was wrong. But you look at the numbers. Like, I looked at the tracking data two, three weeks ago. He's still one of the most efficient pick-and-roll players in the league. Like, it's, I, I was blown away by the numbers because of how disengaged he looks. When he runs pick-and-roll, 
the results are consistently really, really good. And they just need someone who can get north-south on this team. Someone who can just get into the teeth of the defense, who isn't LeBron, and compromise the defense and kick out or like God, like maybe finish at the rim. Like D'Angelo Russell has been on a heater for a month. He does not do that. Austin Reeves kind of doesn't really do that either. He kind of meanders and half spins and fakes and draws fouls and takes fadeaway 12-foot jumpers. And he's quite good at all those things. He's a very good playmaker. Just give me someone who's like, let me dispense with all this and go zoop and get to the rim and throw some lobs. And Dinwiddie, for all the noise, can do like it, it, would you be surprised if Dinwiddie were were closing occasional games at least for the Lakers, like as part of the closing five? I I would not be. I would not be surprised by that at all. I think that's part of the vision. Uh, I think they've wanted to find ways to have guys make more plays around LeBron and AD. So if you tell me potentially it's a three-guard lineup plus LeBron and AD, I wouldn't be surprised by that. Uh, I think it's just it's a big bonus. His ability to self-create, his ability to score, get in the paint, play like, pick give, and roll. Give me, forget three-guard lineup. Give me Dinwiddie, Reeves, LeBron, Hachimura, Davis. Like, you signed Hachimura, you paid him all this money. Play the guy. It's not like he's not Michael Jordan or anything. I just think he's pretty good. Are you, are you, are you completely anti-three-guard lineup for the Lakers? No, no, I just like <laughs> Rui. Time. I don't want I don't want Rui to get shoved over to the side again because I think look his his playoff shooting last year was like one one in a hundred years. Like he'll never shoot like that again for a six week span. But every championship team has a run like a guy who goes on a run like that and makes shots. I just think he's good. Um, Any what else on the Lakers? Uh do you think their defense? is but could be better in the playoffs because they do have size they do have length i i trust their defense because um they're big lebron's old but he's maybe the smartest player in the whole league he always knows where to be and people are scared of him like people are scared to drive on him and ad's ad and they're gonna get a good whistle every game and and i i trust i trust their defense um i think this almost sounds strange, and I might be being caught up in the moment. If you ask me which of these teams has a higher upside, like who's who's ceiling, not maybe for not a single game, because we've seen what the Lakers can do for a single game, for a single two-week period is higher. The Warriors have something going right now. Like you mentioned starting Draymond at the five has kind of unlocked the Kaminga-Wiggins duo along with Draymond. Clay, we will get into um soon Wiggins has has shown a pulse Pajemski's just flat out good like that guy's a good player and Kaminga is really good and they with that group have found a, their identity they they look alternatively like the Warriors of of peak Steph in terms of how the ball moves and how bodies move and boy that shot against Phoenix over the weekend is just an all-timer and then they have this other identity that they've been kind of flirting with and we've all been hoping they get to, which is like, okay, all that stuff doesn't work. Can we just give the ball to like the 6'8 tank who can jump to the top of the backboard and dunk on people and Kaminga and have that little dose of sort of side offense? It's working, man. And Draymond, I said this on NBA Today when the Nurkic thing happened. It was. It made me sad that all we were talking about was the suspensions and the violent stuff and from pool till now. Because this dude is still one of the five or ten best defensive players in the NBA. Like, there's just... 
you can't even get to one hand worth of fingers listing the, the listing the number of guys with his versatility. He he's really ties them all together on defense. I don't know, man. I would I would be scared of this team in the first round of the playoffs if I was one of the top seeds. They they just look way more comfortable. You mentioned Kaminga. It's not just that he's been aggressive, and sometimes he overdoes it, but he's aggressive within their context with movement. The seals, I like that. I think defensively, Dude, he seals people and they fall out of bounds. Like <laughs> he's so strong, there are dudes just like in the in the cameraman. Like what happened? Oh, Jonathan Kaminga sealed him. And and he adds a dose for them in transition. I think that's a plus. I think defensively. Wiggins, Clay, and Kuminga have felt better during this stretch as far as we're navigating screens. Draymond's got our back. We know our job. We know our task. And I just think everything's kind of falling back in line to where, okay, they sounded like a team for most of the year that was like, we can get to a place. Now we're kind of seeing where that might be. And now it's kind of, it feels like a race against time almost. I'll tell you, they look really good. And Pajemski and Kaminga are ready. Like they're ready on what is left of Steph's timeline, whatever that is, however long that lasts. And this dude, he's taking he's taking thirteen threes per thirty six minutes. It would be the second highest number of his career in any season. He's taken sixteen in the last three games, and he has two games of twenty plus three point attempts in the last like ten games. It's crazy how many shots he's getting up, how many threes he's getting up, and he's still the same. Degree of difficulty, same highlight. He's still the best show in the NBA is still Steph Curry on a hot streak. Um, He had one with, I think they were in Indiana last week, where he made seven threes in a row in the first quarter. And the whole Pacers crowd was just going crazy. It was like, it sounded like a Warriors home game. Um, You mentioned Clay. Why did you mention Clay? You said Clay figuring it out. What did you mean by that? I think it's more just understanding when the shots are going to come, where they're going to come, and what this team needs from him. I think that part has been key for me. And hierarchy-wise, understanding how it shifted to a degree to where they still need him, but he doesn't have to force it sometimes, if that makes sense. You've kind of felt that kind of shift sometimes. Like, obviously, I think he had the 4-for-19 game against Atlanta. But he's had a couple nights where, okay, I don't have this going. Let me contribute that. I think figuring out that portion helps the Warriors out overall. You know, um, Clay gave that very raw interview after the Nets game where the Warriors won in Brooklyn and he was benched in crunch time. uh, Where he said, yeah, this is hard for me to go from one of the best guys in the league to not playing. Of course it's hard. And after that, Marcus Thompson, who covers the Warriors for The Athletic, wrote what I thought was a really great piece and a really fair piece about how this is a player coming to terms with the death of the player that he used to be um, and trying to understand the good player that is still in there that he still can be for this team. And I thought it was a really fair piece. I I don't know that... I, I wonder how it was received in Clay World... And I don't use that facetiously. I mean, like the people around Clay. Um, and one of the points that Marcus made in the piece was just what you just said. And I, I, I've said before, his passing to me, particularly this season, his passing, his ball movement is kind of a bellwether for how he's playing and how the Warriors are playing. And I don't mean that Clay is going to suddenly average like eight assists a game. 
and and Marcus made this point. I mean, quite simply, as long as Clay Thompson plays in the NBA, he is going to be treated like one of the most dangerous shooters who has ever lived. People are going to be in his jersey at all times. When he comes around a pin down screen, which the Warriors do a million times a game, two guys are going to jump out at him because he's Clay Thompson. And if he's open, you're going to be very worried about it. And I think Marcus's point was basically like four times a game in that situation, Clay is taking leaning, crazy, off the dribble three pointers, trying to find the Clay that used to be there, that used to be able to make those shots and can't make those shots anymore, at least enough to justify them. If you turn those four shots into four simple bounce passes to whoever just set the pin down screen for him and so is rolling into open space, Kaminga, Saric, Looney, Jackson Davis, whoever, and keep the machine moving, that's really all it is. A Clay who does that four times is still a really good player because he can guard up on defense. He can he guarded Market in last night. They blew out the Jazz. I think that's really all it is, and I think that guy can still be a good player. And I think that that's the transformation. And I understand why. Well, I guess I can't understand because I've never achieved anything at his level. But like that must be a hard thing to kind of internalize. Like I used to make those crazy leaning shots, and they used to take your soul from you if you were the other team. I would make two in a row. You'd call a timeout. The crowd would be going crazy. And I'd have you, and I can't do that anymore. No, I agree. I, I think that is a tough portion of it, but I think you, you got to trust. He'll. I think I trust he would figure it out. I think he's headed in that direction. I think the totally. team, the team playing well, the team playing better will help that. And honestly, you add to that point where you made. Hey, if it's four bounce passes, if you keep the machine moving, it might come back to you. And if it comes back to you, now you see that success. Okay. Now that revs us up even more. So that's where I'm like, okay, maybe the Warriors have something there. And they were pretty active at the trade deadline, from what I heard, um, in terms of like buying. They 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 are operating like a team who's like, if we have Steph, we're trying to win every every. They like they looked hard at Olenek. I'm not quite sure what was going out in that deal. I actually heard it wasn't Moses Moody. You think it was? I'm not sure that it was. Obviously, it wasn't Kaminga or Pajemski. Kaminga was a hard, a hard no, for like <laughs> from the start. Um, Caruso, they would have loved to get Caruso from the Bulls. I just don't think there was any common ground there. Those are the two names that I, that I heard a lot of. Um, the dangerous team. It's just the consistency, right? Is like teams that are twenty eight and twenty six, or twenty eight and twenty six and twenty five in the Warriors' case, have that record because they just can't put it together. It's it's hard to you've you've been in the league. It's hard to be great four times out of five nights, four games out of five games. It's hard to do that, and that's the only way you advance in the playoffs. And like the teams above them have proven, whatever our ceiling is, we can approach it damn near every night. And, and I just need to see these two teams do it. But their ceilings are are scary. <laughs> Give me another big question, unless you have parting thoughts on this. Uh, I have another question for you. Go. Can the Knicks and the Sixers hold on? It's a big question. We we have seen the good from the Knicks, especially once they got OG Ananobi. That defense turned to a different machine. Uh, they added more depth. I love Bogey and Alec Burks for them. I, I would like them more if Julius Randle and OG were also there. But I understand injuries are injuries. Jalen Brunson's been incredible. You're adding more shooting around it. You now have the scenario where teams are saying, you know what, Jalen Brunson, not you, a lot earlier than you would expect. 
throwing two on the ball, which should be a plus in theory, because, hey, we can get a team in rotation. But also, now are we matchup hunting if we're New York and looking to get switches for Jalen Brunson and teams are doubling and helping? Are we doing a little bit too much of that? So can they hold on to what they found until they get healthy again? Philadelphia adding Buddy Heald I thought was really good. Me too. I think, obviously, what he does shooting-wise, scoring-wise will help once Joel Embiid or if Joel Embiid is able to return. I also think it helps in the short term because Tyrese Maxey got a little dose of coaches sitting down and meeting and saying, we're taking you away. We're, we're going to trap you. And the playmaking growth is one thing. It's a little different when it's two on the ball or teams looking to help or the space isn't the same. So having Buddy Heald, who you can use him and Maxey together off ball in actions and let Maxey get downhill that way, or have Buddy Heald screen for Tyrese Maxey, I think is a plus. But now can they find enough to hold on to the status they had? Or are they just going to end up playing against each other in the first round? Well, it would be interesting if you, I think if you went to Philadelphia today and said, hey, we can, the basketball gods come to the Sixers and say, hey, we'll just work some magic and you can just be the five seed. We'll just stick you in the five seed. I wonder if they would sign up for that given, I mean, like their whole team is hurt. Batum's hurt, Melton's hurt, Harris is hurt, Embiid's hurt. Like every, like I can't even keep track of who's hurt. Um, look, both these teams are so happy that the All Star break is here, and so happy that the All Star break is now a week long because that that's you know a third to a quarter of how much Ananobi is going to miss reportedly. Randall, hopefully, a lot of that he'll get much closer to being back after that. <clears throat> but you know. A lot of this is just like the race to get out of Boston's half of the bracket. I don't know if if either team is is sort of holds Boston in that regard. Like we really want to get on the other side of the bracket from them. I think they just need to get healthy. Of these teams in terms of holding on, if holding on is staying in the 4-5 area or staying out of play-in danger, I think I have more faith in the Knicks just because they're a little deeper when they get healthy. They're a little deeper when they're injured than Philly. And they just have that Tibbs, like, we'll just manufacture some wins by beating the hell out of you and getting 25 offensive rebounds. Can I ask a follow-up question? Have, have, the, have the Knicks done enough to knock on the Boston Celtics' door and say you're not going to have fun? So this is going to sound a little nuts, considering I picked Boston to win the championship. Boston is 41-12. and 12. Started 26-6, and 15-6 and six since then. Not quite as dominant, just regular, very good. And in a way, it's comforting that when you slip from dominance, you're still like one of the four to five best teams in the league statistically. I think they're fourth in net rating since they were in that 15 and six stretch. I think they're going through a little bit of like a can we just get to the playoffs malaise? Um, can we just get to all star malaise? I'm still picking Boston to win the title. I'm not coming off that. I'm sticking with it, come hell or high water. Just like I stuck with my Milwaukee Clippers finals pick last year. Did not work out for me. (laughs) Um, I do think the Knicks can scare the Celtics. I think the Knicks can give the Celtics a real series if they get there. That's the problem, right? Right? Like if you're, if depending on who you face and what bracket you're in, you may not get the chance. But I think the Knicks, I think the Knicks could, could beat any team in the Eastern Conference in a seven game series. I would not give them a good chance to beat Boston. Like I think that's a 75-25 series for the Celtics, maybe maybe even better than that. But 
I the others are, you know, I, Philly's just such a wild card. We don't know what we're gonna get out of Philly and Embiid when when it's go time. I think the Knicks could beat Milwaukee in a playoff series. I don't know who I would pick in that series as of today. I would probably default to just like Milwaukee's got the best guy. Um, but I think that's a real series. We've seen them beat Cleveland. They have played Boston pretty tough. Less so this season after the season opener, which was a very close game. Last year, they had Boston's number. I just think something about their style of play is very bothersome for teams. They're just physical, and they pound you, and they go one-on-one, and they don't turn the ball over. They win the possession game every single game. Like I said, I think it's probably like 75-25-80-20 Boston. But if we woke up and like that was a playoff series in the second round, it's like, all right, let's look ahead to Game 7 in Boston, Celtics-Knicks. I wouldn't be shocked. Would you? No. I'd answer your own question. I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't be shocked if, if the Knicks won Game 1 in Boston. That feels like a very Tibbs has a game plan. We have depth type beat. I think that Boston is very good. I have Boston going to the conference. I mean, to the finals. My question is now, can we get Boston in a scenario where they get in their own way? Can we get them in those moments where they play too slow late in games? Can we get them in those scenarios where we're focused in on attacking a certain matchup? And we're not making you feel the weight of our entire lineup. Because they're, they're, their top five is very good. Their top six is very good. We've seen them make teams pay with Porzingis, rolling, spacing, attacking switches. Tatum's been very good. Brown's been good. White and Holiday, tough to deal with. But will they bog down in a way that where, okay, we might be able to steal this one? And does that change the momentum? That's pretty much my only question with Boston. Can they get out of their own way? You know, I was listening to, I didn't see the quotes, but during one of Boston's recent games, I think it might have been on ESPN, the announcers were talking about how Joe Mazzulla said something to the effect of like, <clears throat> one of the things that concerns me is our guys getting weighed down by the pressure and the moment and the stakes in the playoffs. And I just kind of want us to go back to, hey, win, lose, whatever. Let's enjoy the journey and just be able to say we played our way the whole time and him verbalizing that I didn't know whether it should make me nervous. Like, can you not just say the P word pressure? Like, can you just not, not say it? Cause I do think you're going to face it. And everyone knows how close you've gotten to the top of the mountain in what is now a very long era of top tier contention, but not gotten to the top and the pressure that that brings, or should I be relieved that you're facing it head on and telling your team, just play. And if we just play, we're the best team. I didn't I don't know the answer to that, but him saying it was very interesting to me, if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, as I'm going off the top of my head here. Um but getting in their own way is an interesting way to put it. There has been a little bit of slippage in their play in the last month, but not anything that is really alarming to me. If anything, everyone focuses on their crunch time offense and they've earned that. Their crunch time offense has been scattershot, let's say. I think they have another gear to hit defensively when mm. the games really matter, and that is when when they get really, really tough, is when they scheme you in all sorts of funky ways and switch it up every possession, and everyone is totally dialed in defensively. I think that's their trump card. I think that's like, yeah, we might have a bad night on offense. We might get a little stagnant. We never get to the goddamn rim. Can you please get to the rim more? <laughs> but we have this impenetrable defense where, like, Jalen Brown's the fifth best defensive player on the floor. Like, that's how good we can get. Um, I don't know how we started talking about Boston. I guess the Knicks. 
Yeah, the 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 East is both conferences are just kind of wild right now. How how every week brings like, oh, this team's back. Oh, this team's in a slump. It's been it's been kind of a fun season. Uh, I've always liked the Orlando, Indiana, Miami win streak that uh, that pushes one of them to six, and it's like, oh, here they come, and then oh, there they go. Uh, speaking of the, of a couple of those teams, can I ask you one of my uh, big questions? Yes. For the rest of the season, we're going to go down the standings a little bit now, Steve, where the stakes are not quite as high, um, and the lens is a little longer. One of my big questions for the rest of the season, now that the trade deadline is in the books, is okay. Um, so, what's the plan with Trey Young? Like, like. What what do we actually think of Trey Young as a player on this Hawks team? Is it time to start envisioning what Trey Young would look in different contexts? And if so, what are those contexts? Um, can the Hawks put together ten days of like looking like they have their house in order? Now DeAndre Hunter's back, Capella will be back at some point, Akongo's playing really well. Um DeJounte didn't get traded. Everyone's here. I, I don't know. I, I'm, you've talked about it. I listen to your podcast regularly, but like, I give give me just like the Steve Jones Jr. Like, where are you on the Trey Young scale? From in on one hand, uh, uh, NBA know it all, calling him a loser, and on the other hand, enraged Hawks fan who's like, "How dare he not make the All Star team? He's the best player in the NBA." In that continuum, where are you? Uh, per the brand, I'm in the middle. Uh, I think Trey Young is very talented. I think the issue is what does the talent do as far as impacting winning? And what can you do around him to build up a winner? And I think my biggest thing with Atlanta is the defense has never moved to a point where I feel good about it. And like I said, I saw the vision. I I was like early, I was like, hey, DeAndre Hunter usage is up. Jalen Johnson doing fun things. Here comes Bogdanovich. There's a lot of positives, but then I'm like, I look at the other end of the floor and I'm like, okay, you guys are trying to be more active defensively, put two on the ball, didn't really work, rotations aren't great, now you're in drop, that also isn't working, transition isn't great, so this beautiful offense that you have doesn't have the same impact or value because you give it right back immediately. Like, I mean, you you give up 136 points to a Bulls team that people... Every other, like every time, literally last night, a friend of mine, we'll just call him Tim, his name is Tim, is a Bulls fan. I would describe him as like a casual NBA fan, but a but a Bulls fan. Texts me, well, I'm watching games, I'm not paying attention. Text me like, when is just the classic like guy that's not in the NBA but is in your life NBA question? Hey, when is the NBA going to do something about this scoring problem? I'm like, geez, I wonder. I wonder why Tim, Bulls fan, has this on my on his mind. Time. Oh, they're playing the Hawks. Every time this question is raised, it's because of a Hawks game. Like it's it's unbelievable. To your point about like one thirty six to the Bulls, Luca has seventy three. They should put in the Hall of Fame. They should put a, a running video of Atlanta's double teams of Luka Doncic in that game, and say this is the worst any team has ever looked rotating behind a double team. This this should it should be in the wing of like bad basketball. That I should have, that I think they should have in the whole thing. Anyway, Hawks, please go. I, I, I just, it's, it, it, if you could get somewhere defensively to where I could believe there's some fight, like you mentioned the point about Phoenix and teams don't feel you. I just don't feel like anyone looks at Atlanta and they're unafraid of what they can run offensively. 
And that's a dangerous place to be in in today's NBA, where a whole bunch of teams can make those same reads and get to ball movement. Even the ones you don't think are very good, they can still get you rotating and scrambling. I just, I'm in a tough spot with them because there's talent and potential, but it, it never feels like it's maximized. And I don't even know if it's Trey's fault at this point. I don't even know if I point to him. I'm just like, what is the overall goal of what you're accomplishing? Like, how, how long can they sustain defense? Is it longer than 10 seconds? I thought you were going to say 10 minutes, and I was going to say it's less than that. 10 seconds. If Jalen Johnson is on the floor, we can get to 10 seconds. If, uh, absent that, I'm not sure we can do it. Um, Trey Young gets no credit anymore for the 2021 conference finals run. None. People dismiss it as like a – no, no. I'm, I'm saying this is wrong. I think this is unfair. Mm-hmm. People dismiss it as a fluke. Um the Knicks were bad, and they were in the playoffs. Uh, the Sixers were falling apart. Ben Simmons threw the pass. Um, all the focus on the other teams. I think, like, you don't you don't get to the conference finals completely by accident. Like, remember Portland had the run to the conference finals in 2019 when they were on the right side of the bracket. They got injury luck, and then they got rolled by the Warriors in the conference finals, even though Durant was hurt. And in two, three, four years out, you started to hear, like, Oh yeah, Dame got to the conference finals once, but that was a fluke. Like it, getting to the conference finals is hard. Ask the Clippers, as I always say about the conference finals. Ask the Clippers, who could never ever get there until to, to this particular uh, season we're talking about, twenty twenty one. Um, and I look back. You watch that Boston Atlanta series from last year, which is the first round series. It opens with Boston just destroying the Hawks in the first two games. Hawks didn't even look like they belonged on the same court as Boston. Trey Young deserves some blame for that defensively. The Hawks got dangerously close to bringing that series back to Game 7 in Boston. And the only reason they got that close was Trey Young started going crazy. Mm-hmm. And completely picking apart the Celtics defense. One of the best defenses in the NBA. Celtics defense was an A-plus level in that series or close. But by the end of Game 6 which Boston squeaked out in Atlanta, the Celtics were like, can we just be done with this dude? Because we we don't have an answer for this little dude offensively. And to your point about if we can just take that and put it on a roster that can cover for him defensively, provided he's giving enough effort, and I think he's giving more effort this year, the, the offensive talent is extraordinary. Like, he is a one-man offense. He's a one-man top 10 NBA offense. There are not a lot of guys like that. I just look around and, like, I, the Hawks clearly don't have that team as of now. And they didn't trade DeJounte Murray. And, look, I'm just telling you, I have no idea what the Hawks are going to want to do in the offseason. I have no idea how the next—this is part of the reason why I'm so fascinated by the next 20 games. If this team shows me something— shows themselves something in the next 25 games in the play-in, in the playoffs if they get there, that, hey, this architecture is worth keeping, that's interesting too. If they don't, I think at the very least, there are going to be a couple teams around the league who call and say, hey, what, what you, is Trey, can we get Trey? Like, can we, get, can we at least start a conversation about Trey? And that makes me start to have the internal conversation of like, who makes sense for Trey Young? So I ask you, just as a thought exercise, Steve Jones Jr., is there a team that you imagine in a realistic trade scenario where like, oh, Trey would actually look pretty good there? Uh, the realistic part hurt me, but Brooklyn. 
It's a good name. That kind of roster would intrigue me. Now, um, can I think of another one, though? Well, so Mark Stein mentioned two in his newsletter yesterday. One is the Lakers, which is much rumored around the league that when the Lakers get three first-round picks, get access to three first-round picks in the summer, Trey is one of the stars that they will potentially, maybe, possibly go hunting for. It's interesting. The other team Mark Stein mentioned is the Spurs. And, you know, that's Wembenyama and defense and all that stuff. And I've long been intrigued by that by the idea of, like, pair Trey with, like, a super-duper version of Capella. Like, the, like, a top five defender in the entire NBA. What does that look like? And who also compliments him on offense? What does that look like? I don't think either team has even arrived close to the point where they're even thinking about this, to be clear. That's one. Chicago is an obvious one. I don't really see anything there. Well, maybe. I don't know. Let me ask you this. Is there anything that makes sense about Trey Young with Bancaro and Franz Wagner in Orlando? Yes, it makes sense. Ooh, that makes. I, by a the lot way, of I'm sense. not asking that in a leading way. I don't know if I. I don't know if my brain can even handle any of that right now. It makes sense. My thing is, I like the way Orlando has built it to where we know Paolo can do things playmaking wise. I think he's grown. Uh, we know Franz can do things playmaking wise, and we have our guards just do their job. Occasionally mix in a drive, occasionally run a pick and roll, but y'all don't have to handle the the bulk of it. I think Trey would help them shooting-wise, spacing-wise, playmaking-wise. How much would that affect the hierarchy, I guess? Would you stunt growth that way? Do you need to make a move right now is where my head goes. So my head goes to the Magic obviously need a guard, like any guard, a guard who can shoot. And Suggs is getting there. I love Suggs. Keep Suggs. Everyone loves Suggs. Um, Trey Young can, can shoot and run offense and all that. It's just... It's confusing the vision in that Wagner and Bancaro have the ball a lot and are operate with the ball, which is what Trey Young does. And neither settles super easily into like a distant second or co-star off ball role. And that, that's a that's a sea change to your team. Um on the other hand, this team does have the size and versatility at least the outlines of the kind of team that can cover for Trey Young defensively, particularly, and this is where the vision really gets confusing. If like Jonathan Isaac is ever going to be a, we can count on this guy to play 25 minutes, every single game player, he's kind of approaching that. It's more like 19 to 22 minutes a game recently, but Oh my God, this guy, I, I'm not, I, He's insane. On, I mean, he's always been insane on defense, but now we're seeing it over extended time, and it's like you can't get away from him. You can't see around him. You can't. It's unbelievable how good he is. So I'm not unintrigued. That's all. That makes sense. Uh, but, but being able to watch Isaac and Suggs play defense is very fun, especially for an Orlando team that is based on that defense being their identity. Like if you want to have fun, if you watch the league. Watch an Orlando game when they play a, a sparsely attended crowd and listen for their coaching staff yelling out defensive instructions. It's one of my favorite subplots. What, 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 what should I listen for? What should the people listen for? What do they yell? 
low man you're gonna hear that about 15 times <laughs> or there or if you catch a free throw they'll they'll call out what the action is it's it, it's very fun don't make me do my uh my tibs impression of him saying low man um <laughs> i don't i don't want to do it um <laughs> What were we talking about? Isaac. Oh, this is all just pie in the sky stuff. The only reason I asked the question is because if I'm Landry Fields or who's ever running the Hawks right now, I want, I, I've kept the team together. I didn't do anything of substance at the trade deadline. Now this becomes a laboratory. Now I want to see, like, can we get any continuity? Can we get somewhere with this team? Even if we lose in the play-in, lose in the first round or whatever, do I see something that's like, Okay, Trey and Dejounte, this actually works. If not, I gotta, I gotta open up, I gotta open up some options. That's all. The other problem is they're facing is they traded their picks to San Antonio. So if I trade Trey Young to another team, that's probably gonna be good because they have Trey Young or at least decent. Well, their picks, which are coming back to me, are not gonna be great. My picks, which is the whole point of a rebuild, are in the hands of San Antonio. That doesn't seem great. I think that's why people start speculating about the Spurs as a trade partner. The two did talk about DeJounte Murray, but, you know, anyway. any You got one last big question for me that I can answer in one sentence? Or have we covered all your big questions? Uh, who on earth wins Coach of the Year? Oh, I can do that in one sentence. Okay, let me go through right now. I don't have a ballot this year, but let's see. It's funny how this goes, right? So 25 games in, it was like, oh, Jamal Mosley. No brainer. It's going to be Jamal Mosley. 50, like 40 games in, it was Mark Dagnall. It's got to be Mark Dagnall. Uh, then there was like a little Chris Finch. Like, oh, maybe it's Chris Finch. Uh, then it was like, is it maybe Ty Lue? Like, Ty Lue figured this one out with the Clippers. Uh, then it was like, wait, is it Tibbs? Is it is it maybe Tibbs for, for imposing his identity as a team? Is it maybe Doc Rivers for coaching the All-Star game in world record time? Is it maybe him? <laughs> uh then it's like, wait, J.B. Bickerstaff, can we really give it to him after the playoffs last year? Um, if I had to guess right now, projecting what the voting pool would do, I think probably Dagnalt would win. If the Thunder are first or second in the West, I think it'll be Dagnalt. I don't know who I would vote for right now. Probably someone who I just mentioned I would vote for. But who, who, what's your take? Who's your opinion? Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the journey because I've been on that the entire time. I, I probably would lean Dagnall right now, uh, thinking about Bickerstaff. I do love that uh, in no point was it Joe Missoula, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with that. <laughs> I've been on I've been on the Joe Missoula. I've been a Joe Missoula defender. He became I think an unfair object of ridicule last year, um, and I've had enough conversations with Joe Missoula at games and stuff to like. He's one of those guys, you start talking to him about basketball, he's going to make your ass feel stupid real fast. Like, if you went to Joe Mazzullo and were like, how come you don't call timeout? He would be like, all right, name the game. And he would tell you, oh, this was happening, this was happening, this was happening. He'd be like, oh, this dude's on another level. I'm going to just shrink back into my turtle shell right now. I think Joe Mazzullo deserves a little bit more respect. One, he's also very candid or getting more candid. I just, like, they had a lot of pieces they had to move together offensively and defensively and he deserves a little bit more praise for the job he's done to I get hope, them to this level i hope he's not watching the movie the town as often as he said he was last year which was i think twice weekly or some crazy number um i'll tell you this though uh if if the wolves end up number one in the west chris finch is going to get a lot of votes because 
that was a roster that people were worried, like, does this actually work? Does it fit? These two bigs together. And it's it's working right now. Um, okay, Steve Jones Jr., What where can we look for you this week? What do we got? Uh, the Dunker Spot. Uh, listen to it. Available on all podcasts. Uh, available on YouTube, on JJ Reddick's YouTube channel. And that's it. I'm really good at plugging stuff. You are very elite at plugging stuff, and uh, your Twitter handle is Steve Jones Jr., right? Your X handle, whatever we're saying it now. Oh, uh, uh, Steve Jones 20. 20. Steve Jones 20. See, I don't I just, you just, I just type Steve and it comes up. That's all right. Get it 2.0 Jr. If you want, if you want to know what's going on in an NBA game, whatever handle he just said, <laughs> go to that and you'll learn what's going on. Steve Jones 2.0. Thank you for your time. <laughs> I'll see you around the block. We'll see you. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream. Your team. Call 1 800 Direct TV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. All right, it's time to bring in a man who covers the most under the radar, scorching hot team in the NBA. I've already done one segment on these guys in the last couple weeks with Tim Bontemps. I got complaints that it was too Bontempsy. It was too negative. He was too down on the team. So we want to bring someone in closer to the team. And of course, fresh off a dispiriting home loss to the Philadelphia 76ers who didn't have like anybody except Tyrese Maxey and Buddy Heald going crazy. Chris Fedor of Cleveland.com. You cover the Cleveland Cavaliers. How are you, sir? Zach, I'm doing great. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. So here's where we are. Despite that loss, weird loss, no Dean Wade. The jingle is coming back in this That's episode, right. by the way. It's happening. I mean, you see what happens when you take Dean Wade away from the team. You can have Garland. You can have Mobley. You have no Dean Wade. Hey, man. With him on the court, 102 defensive rating. With him off the court, 112 defensive rating. The numbers speak for themselves. Not yet. Um, the Cavs are 22-5 and five in their last 27 games. 17 and 2 in their last 19 games. Oh, you can tell me schedule this that. You don't go 17 and 2 in essentially a 20 25% of the NBA season without being a serious goddamn team. And they are up to fourth in net rating for the league. They're 15th in offense, but they've been just about number 1 over the last 6 weeks of the season and second in defense. So that fearsome defense that carried them 
to the playoffs where it didn't quite work out for them, although the defense was okay, um, has sustained. And what's interesting about the Cavs is this is the magic of the 82-game season. You never know when a team is going to land upon an identity and sort of just organically discover the best version of itself. And amid the crisis of Darius Garland breaking his jaw and Evan Mobley getting injured, two of their foundational four players, the Cavs found an identity that they had talked about wanting to find before the season. Pace, passing, threes, 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 threes. And then they've sort of managed to carry over the best elements of it the foundational elements of it with Garland back and Mobley back and they've kept on rolling. And Chris, it's almost like they're very interesting. They have three different teams within a team and they're all working. They have the starters who are actually the statistically the worst version of the Cavaliers, but still that group is now the, the four best players, the, the two guards and the two bigs is plus five or six per hundred possessions. That's very good. Then you have Donovan Mitchell, and Jared Allen are tethered together with shooting around them and sometimes a coral around them who's making threes. That group, that version of the team, those two on, Mobley and Garland off, plus 13 per 100 possessions. Then you flip it around, Garland and Mobley play while Mitchell and Allen sit. That version of the team, plus 16 per 100 possessions. And the eye test is just, they are flying on offense. And by flying, I don't mean running helter-skelter, fast-break basketball, and they've mixed in more fast-breaks. I mean, you and I sat down before the season and talked about how this team cannot win, regardless of who plays with whom, if it's just, okay, hand me the ball, okay, pick and roll that everyone sees coming 20 seconds in advance. We can load up on it, particularly when the two bigs are on the floor. It's got to be more unpredictable than that. It's got to be faster than that. They are running their half-court offense at a furious, frenetic pace, We'll get into that a little bit more. And at the center of it all, coming a very quiet seventh, I believe, in Tim Bontemps' straw poll today of the MVP, Donovan Mitchell, 28 points, six and a half assists, that's a career high. Five and a half rebounds, that's a career high. And I think playing the best defense of his career, the Cavs are plus 11 per 100 possessions with Donovan Mitchell on the floor and minus two and a half without him. He carried the team during the absences of Garland and Mobley. Look, we can sit here and have a semantic debate about what the MVP conversation is. He does not belong above Giannis, Shea, and Jokic in the MVP conversation in whatever order you want to put those guys. And then you have Luka, another guy, Kawhi, blah, blah. We can talk all about that. What he does belong in, though, is he deserves to get his Jalen Brunson moment where everybody on national TV spends a segment of their NBA show talking about, why is Jalen Brunson in the MVP conversation? Yes. Where is he? Donovan Mitchell has been, I think, per minute, equally good, if not a hair better than Jalen Brunson, but Jalen Brunson has a big minutes advantage over him. Just an unbelievable season. And this is the magic of basketball, man. 82 games is too many games is too long, but the twists and the turns, this team is interesting. How are they feeling about... Um, the, the reintegration of Garland and Mobley and their ability to sort of stick with what worked without them. And how are Mobley and Garland specifically, what are they saying about that? I think you hit on it, Zach. I think the most important thing for the Cavs is being able to diversify their attack, especially on the offensive end of the floor, because they were too predictable last year in the playoffs against the Knicks. And part of that had to do with the personnel that they had. 
And now, because they went through this long stretch without Evan and Darius, and they were forced to play a different style and use different groupings and lineups and combinations, they have found different things that work with different groups that they put out there. So if they want to play two bigs, they can do it. Right. If they want to play four shooters and stagger Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, they can do that. If they want more movement based stuff on the offensive end of the floor, they can pair Max Struess and Sam Merrill together at the same time. That creates a lot of havoc for an opposing defense. Um, if they want to go pick and roll stuff, they can do that, too, because Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, both elite pick and roll players, Jared Allen, an elite pick and roll big. So they can play a bunch of different styles while at the same time leaning on their defense, which has been great during this last stretch. So they're feeling really good about the things that they have found, the ways that they can attack teams on the offensive end, the style that they're playing defensively, the competitiveness that they're playing with on a nightly basis. And you see glimmers of Darius Garland finding himself again and Evan Mobley finding himself again. Look, Zach, over the last month or so, um, since Evan Mobley came back, he has been the fifth most efficient offensive player in the entire NBA, right there in the category with Jimmy Butler, Steph Curry, Shea Gilgis, Alexander, and some of the elite players. Evan is finding a way to blend into the fabric of this team, not force it too much. He's extending his game more out to the perimeter. He's shooting the ball with more confidence. There's more arc on his shots. And then even in the loss against Philadelphia, Darius Garland had a really, really important moment. It was in the third quarter. The Cavs went on a 12-2 run, and Darius was responsible for all 12 of those points. And he came back to the bench, and he was really, really excited. He was amped, and you could tell. like That wasn't the moment where he felt like, hey, I'm back, because he's not there yet. I think it's going to take through the All-Star break for him to feel like he's quote unquote back in the rhythm that he was um, before he fractured his jaw. But there were signs of him starting to see the game quicker and not being a half step slow and reading what the defense was doing and seeing how he could fit within this new dynamic offensively. Yeah, they look, I mean, look, they lost last night. You're going to lose games. It's going to happen. They were bound to lose another game. They've looked like outstanding Obviously, the record speaks for itself, but they've had games where they just flat out outclassed teams. Some good, some bad, just out like you're up 20 in the second quarter, outclassed. Um, a couple of things you mentioned. Mobley is 7 of 12 on threes in his last six games. Yep. It's not throw a party. It's not It's not cause for celebration. Just It's just interesting. It's something I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Number two, Jared Allen has never played with this kind of confidence on offense before. If he is having these takes to the basket three or four times a game where he will catch it at the foul line and he needs a dribble and he can do it lefty dribble, lefty finish, righty righty dribble, lefty foot, whatever. And he's like gliding. It looks smooth. He had a little lefty hook last night that I would not describe as smooth, but it was effective. He's just never been – he's more than just a dunker right now, and that and that's important for them. And Sam Merrill, look, he's, he's going to fall to the fringes of the rotation. It's already happening. Just a game ops idea for the Cavs. When he comes in the game, start a countdown on the jump, the Humungatron, which is, by the way, hats off to the Cavs for leaning in all the way to how ridiculous it is that their Jumbotron is so big that they call it the Humungatron. Like, they actually say that word on the broadcast, and uh, they just showed the replay on the Humungatron. The Humungatron, which sounds like a Transformer robot, 
should have a countdown yeah. of the of uh, how long it takes before Sam Merrill gets up a three. <laughs> and if it's less than 30 seconds of game time, everyone should have to take a drink. Every, everyone of age who has a drink should have to chug a beer like Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl. Um, and by the way, just so zooming out, here's where we are. Um, one of the interesting subplots, obviously, for the rest of the season is the race for seeds two and three mm. in the Eastern Conference. The Knicks are now four games behind in the loss column uh, from Cleveland after getting robbed of a chance at overtime last night in Houston on an absolutely ridiculous call that the referees immediately admitted was ridiculous. Does nothing for the Knicks, but it, I appreciate your candor. Um, and uh, and they're now two games up on the Bucks in the loss column in the yep. two, three, four, and uh, four up on Philly too. Um, basketball Reference gives them a seventy-seven percent shot at finishing with the second seed. Playoffstatus.com, which is a site I like, is a little less optimistic. Still 60%. Like, if they stay healthy, their schedule is just okay. We're probably looking at the number two seed in the Eastern Conference. At least the math says we are. That's that's a big, big deal for Cleveland. It's a massive deal. It could be the difference between them getting out of the first round of the playoffs and making a deep playoff run, Zach, and losing in the first round. Look, how different would the conversation have been about the Cavs and whether last year was a successful season for them if they got Brooklyn in round one as opposed to the Knicks, who are a terrible matchup for them? Completely different. But maybe they don't learn as much, right? Maybe they don't evolve the way that they have. So maybe that was a benefit to them. But if we're looking at it big picture, Zach, coming into this year, I think a lot of people felt like, okay, it's locked in. Top three seeds in the Eastern Conference in some order are going to be Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia. So that meant... And it, nev- it never works out that way. We always lock these teams <laughs> right. in, and it looks like the right thing to do, and then there's like yeah. 9,000 weird things happen. It's like, oh, it's not going to be that way. Oh, shoot. We should have used an erasable pencil instead of a pen for that one. But then you had the Cavs, and you had the Knicks, and you had the Hawks, and you had Indiana, and some of these other teams that were battling for the final locked-in three playoff spots in the East, but were also battling to, like, avoid different teams in the playoffs, in a sense. But coming into the year, you felt like, okay, well, Cleveland and New York, probably on a collision course to face each other in the first round again at 4-5. Again, not a great matchup for the Cavs. Maybe 50-50, maybe 60-40, depending on how you look at that series. And then if the Cavs were going to advance past New York or whoever it would be in that 4-5 matchup, then you're facing Boston in the second round of the playoffs? Like, what? Now they're looking at a situation where if they stay in the two seed, you know, the first round matchup could be, emphasis on could be, because you never know about Miami, They've got Tiger blood, and you never know about Philadelphia if they bring back Embiid in the playoffs and some team has to play them in the first round. That's that's asking a lot. But they could be faced with a better, more favorable first-round matchup that allows them to get out of the first round, which is their primary goal, and then the possibility of avoiding Boston until the conference finals. So, like, teams aren't looking and saying, hey, like – we've got to find the easiest road to get to the NBA finals or something along those lines. But the easier path that you have, the better chance you're going to have. And maybe that could be the difference between a long playoff run and a first round exit. So the Cavs being in the second seed in the Eastern conference act, I think it's critical for them. 
Now, assuming the Knicks get healthy soon-ish, and the All-Star break mm-hmm. is very well-timed for them, for Ananobi's injury and for Randall's injury, the seventh seed, if Cleveland stays two, <laughs> the seventh seed is going to be one of four teams. Philadelphia, you outlined why that could potentially be scary. Yeah. Orlando, I-, I think with apologies to the young and frisky Orlando Magic, they would be the preferred opponent of this group. Yeah. Indiana, who's currently seventh, this is I'm going in standings order. That's no picnic, man. Like that offense is legit, and yeah. and, and although they they missed Buddy Hield, and you felt it last night on the other end of that trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and Siakam has just added every dimension they could have hoped Siakam would add to that team. And you mentioned Miami, which like you know uh, condolences to Jimmy Butler, who's taken a leave of absence to deal with the death in the family. But like you just don't want to run into that team in the playoffs and yeah. anytime, any round, wherever. Um, it's not going to be any kind of picnic for them. Um, but look, here's, I think they've been so good that everyone wants to answer the question of, is this a championship contender or not? Mm-hmm. Is this a contender right now? Yeah. And I guess by their record and their seed, you'd have to say, I, I guess, sure. I just, what happened in the playoffs last year was problematic and disturbing and has scarred me as a Cleveland Cavaliers evaluator. But I do think it's important to remember, like this team is still quite young. They have not won a playoff series together yet. Not even close. I mean, in the only game they won, I mean, it's wild to say this now, the only game they won against the Knicks, Jetty Osmond's defense on Jalen Brunson was like a thing that changed the game. Jetty Osmond now plays for the San Antonio Spurs. um, If you you don't remember where he is. Um, And I still think, those Mobley-Allen minutes, although they have minimized them by staggering them so that they sometimes don't ever come back and play at the end of each half together. Like, sometimes they play that first stint and that's it. And then sometimes they come in and finish the half. I actually was frustrated last night. They took Mobley out late in the game, which was that a minutes restriction thing? It was. I, yeah. yeah, that's what, that's what I heard. a minute restriction until after the All-Star break. Yep. That's what I had heard from some of their people. So they brought Mobley. They brought their starting five back in the game to close it against Philly. They have not had a crunch time tester with those guys back almost since they came back and I was like I'm excited to watch this and then they pulled Mobley for Karis Levert and by the way Karis Levert has never defended like this in his entire career he's even better than he was last year he's blocking shots he's just fighting over screens he's been awesome for them as I guess their six man whatever you want to call him um, and I was interested to see like how all right now let's see how this lineup closes the game and then the minutes restriction blah 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 yep. I still think it looks a little clunky at times with those two guys on the floor together offensively. Their offensive rating with those two on the floor is 110 points per 100 possessions. That's bad. It's getting better, just like everything else about the team is trending better. Some, some, and, and because both of them have advanced by 10 15% as playmakers, shooters, whatever you want to classify them, the big guys, uh, and because they have more shooting around them with Struess flying around, um, and Struess hasn't hit enough threes this year, but I, that doesn't bother me. I think he's been playing exactly as they want him to play. Um, it, it's trending the right way, but when it, get, it can still get a little clunky. And whether it's in the playoffs or in a big nationally televised regular season game, eventually J.B. Bickerstaff is going to have to make a really hard choice of like who's not closing tonight yep. and how that is received by the players is going to be very telling. And when and how it happens and what leads up to it is going to be very telling. Because there's going to be a fourth quarter where those two bigs are on the floor and the offense stalls out because the spacing is clunky and Mobley misses a floater. The interior passing, it gets deflected or whatever. I'm not sure I believe in the offense with those two bigs on the floor 
quite enough for me to say this team is a ready-made contender now. And here's the thing about that conundrum, Zach, if you even want to call it a conundrum, because I think there are enough flashes of Evan and Jarrett together being great, especially on the defensive end of the floor. Oh, the defense is the defense is I'd like them to be a little better on the defensive glass when they're playing big, but they're fine. Defensively, they're crazy. And and all the stuff I'm talking about with their offense, their pace and their unpredictability makes it more viable for them to play together. But still, Mm -hmm. it gets a little clunky. But please go ahead. And this is why there's an actual decision for J.B. Bickerstaff, because the roster has improved to the point where there's something else that they could go to where they feel like they gain offensively. You know what I'm saying? If you go back to last year, J.B. didn't want to split up Evan and Jarrett all that much because what was he going to go to? Was he going to go to Dean Wade in, in the situation where he was in, where he didn't have any confidence He couldn't lift his shoulder above his head because he was dealing with an injury. Did he want to take Evan off the floor and split him from Jared Allen to go to Lamar Stevens in a small ball lineup? Did he want to do that to get Jetty Osman on the court more? So like the options that he had, they weren't appealing enough where he felt like, hey, I'm going to gain something offensively if I split those two guys up. So he still felt like, hey, I'm losing a little bit offensively. The spacing's a little bit wonky. The court's a little bit more congested. I probably don't have enough shooting, but I'm gaining so much defensively that I'm just going to stick with it. This year, the personnel is different, right? They could go to George Niang in a four-shooter lineup, and he hasn't hit shots the way that he would like to at this point in time. But you know what he's capable of. You know the kind of threat that he brings to an opposing defense. It's funny how that works with shooters. Like, Struess and Niang haven't done enough of the thing they're supposedly here to do. Right. And yet they're playing both yep. of them exactly how they should play. And like, I don't worry at all about the shot because there's such threats that they could be shooting 32, 33% and defenses still treat them like a five alarm fire. Of course the Cavs did a study this past off season. I don't know that they had to do a study on this, but they were curious on it. Like what creates more gravity for an offense? Is it shooting percentage or is it shooting volume? And what they determined is that it was shooting volume. So as long as Niang is going to continue to shoot the the opportunities that he gets, and the same thing with Max Struess, and the same thing with Dean Wade and Sam Merrill and some of these other guys, like they have enough of a reputation that a team is not going to sit there and say, well, you know what, dude? Like you're shooting 34%, so we're going to sag off of you. Like it's different. When those guys shoot 34% compared to Isaac Okoro when he shoots 38% because of the sheer volume and the level of attention and the level of reputation that those guys have built. But the point is, like, they have different options that they can go to to expand offensively if they split up Jarrett and Evan. And that's different from last year. So that really does make it an actual decision for JB to have to make. Um, and it will be interesting to see how Jared Allen and Evan Mobley handle that if it comes down to that. And it may come down to that in a specific matchup in a seven game series. Yeah, because we're talking about one of those two guys. It's going to be one of them. And sure. one of them is a former all-star center who has played, I think, even better in the last five weeks than he did when he made the all-star team. Justifiably, probably feels like, hey, I, I, I held down the interior by myself for yeah. six weeks. And the other guy is kind of the guy who was classified as the most important player in the franchise. And and maybe still is. Was. Yeah, was. 
um, was and maybe still is. By the way, I yeah. never sold any of my Evan Mobley stock after last year's playoffs. You can go back and listen to the podcast. I'll st- I still haven't. I'll give me all your de- you're down on Evan Mobley. Anyone down on Evan Mobley, call me. Call yep. my people. I don't have any people. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, uh, it's not going to be Garland or Mitchell, despite the fact that their existence on offense is just fine. Like I, I, I don't think it'll ever be like Warriors lever level beautiful game between the two of them. But both of them are. Even you watch Donovan. He when he doesn't have the ball, he's kind of like sliding around off the ball, skulking around, just little five foot, ten foot relocations to try to. If the defense isn't looking at him, if Darius is doing his little Steve Nash thing under the rim, Donovan will try to find in little pockets of open space. Lavert is doing that more. Yep. Um, it's it's not going to be one of them. It would be one of the bigs. Can I give you an example from last night of what I mean by pace? And like for Please. fans, if they diehards, if they want to, if they want to look into what I'm talking about. Yeah. Sec, second quarter, middle middle of the second quarter, um, the both the bigs are in the game. The Cavs call a set a set play out of a flex action uh, out of I think it was out of a timeout, and it starts with Donovan Mitchell setting a cross screen under the rim for Evan Mobley. And you watch Donovan Mitchell set this screen. He sprints into it and hits Evan Mobley's guy. It's not like a fake, uh, just like, let me jog into this thing and kind of like pat you on the back. He nails K.J. Martin with a pick. So hard, in fact, that K.J. Martin is dislodged and the Sixers have to switch. And Tyrese Maxey has to take Evan Mobley on the block. There's option one right away for the Cavs. Evan Mobley, whose post-up game is getting better and certainly against mismatches, has little Tyrese Maxey on him. Then... Part two of the play is Donovan Mitchell zooms off a Jared Allen pin down at the foul line. That's the second part of the play. And he flies off the screen, flies off of it, so much so that Jared Allen's guy has to zoom off of Jared Allen and like double Donovan Mitchell on the catch. Donovan Mitchell makes the easy bounce pass to Jared Allen for a layup. They are just, it's just like the pace makes that eight out of 10 times teams are going to run that at three quarter speed and it's not going to accomplish very much. The Cavs are running it at 110% speed. And just like even, even their pick and rolls are not just pick and rolls. Like Mobley will have the ball and Donovan Mitchell will come for a handoff and decide, you know what? No, I'm just going to keep zooming to the other side. And here comes Max Struess crisscrossing with me for a handoff. And like you just don't know what's coming as easily. And everything is fast. And that's just how they're going to have to play when the two big guys are on the floor. You probably have seen 100 possessions like that. I was just focusing on it last night. Because I knew you were coming on today, and they were zooming last night. I know they lost, but they're flying. And to your point, Zach, the only players in the NBA that have made more off-ball cuts per game than Max Struess and Sam Merrill, there's only one player. It's Clay Thompson. So, like, that element to the offense did not exist last year because they didn't have players that did it to that level with that force, with that thrust, with that dynamic ability. And it's really changed the Cavs and the way that they can go offensively. And even though Max Struess is not shooting, and he talked to me the other night, like I am not making the amount of shots that that I think I'm capable of. And early on in my career, I probably would have struggled with t- confidence, but, but I've learned that I can make an impact a different kind of way. Even with Struess having such low shooting percentages, they function at a completely different level on the offensive end when he is off the court he is by numbers their second most important player in terms of on off differential behind jess donovan mitchell so even though he's not making those shots 
it hasn't changed the kind of impact that he has had and his ability to raise the game of everybody around him and his ability to make things easier on his teammates as well, which is ultimately what he was brought here to do. You mentioned, uh, I mentioned Mitchell and Garland before. Not that I ever think this was going to be an issue really in terms like ruining their team level issue because Darius Garland is a pretty selfless player by nature, but sometimes injuries and, and blips in the schedule, whatever have a way of kind of clarifying things organically. And in Darius Garland's absence, Donovan Mitchell ascended to such a level that I just don't think there can be any argument that the offense really belongs to him. And Darius Garland is going to have to fit in as the number two perimeter guy. And he'll get to, run the offense with Donovan Mitchell. It reminds me like five seasons ago, Tatum had just a month where he broke out, where he like in the middle of the season, it was like the first third of the season, ratcheted up to like, oh, he's a top 10 player now. Mm -hmm. And that just settled the Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum thing forever. Like it was going to be Jason Tatum's team and Jalen Brown's going to have to fit in. I think that is settled in Cleveland too. And I think Darius has the kind of game where even, even if that could have been an issue, it it can't be, it can't be uh, anymore. Um, and Okoro, I just want to shout out Okoro. That dude is guarding everybody, and everybody. they'll put him on point guards, yep. wings. You know, in some of these series, he's going to have to be the answer to who guards the yep. best wing on the other team. Sometimes it's going to be Mobley, as we've talked about. You invert the matchup so Mobley guards like a Jason Tatum or a Jalen Brown. But one thing we've learned from that playoff series and going forward is you just can't play a Coro together with the two big guys. It's a total non-starter, despite the fact that he's shooting it better. Um, But I guess, I guess to end what I would say is the contender question is like good for TV. It's like a fun question. It's a yes or no question. And that's what people love. It's hard to say this about a team that went 17 and two in its last 19 games. I still think a totally successful outcome for this team is win a first round series and if you lose in the second round to Milwaukee, a healthy Philadelphia, New York, whatever the seeding ends up being, Boston, mm-hmm. if you fall into the four or five, and it's a good competitive series, like that's a step to where you want to get to. And I think given where they started the season and given that I'm still, I still need to see those two bigs together in a playoff setting offensively, I think that would be a totally successful season. They probably would disagree at this point. I, I bet internally they think... Yeah, that'd be great. It would at least like we wouldn't have scrutiny if that was our season, but we think we can do something more. But I don't know. What do you think? Is that if they advance past that, is that is that too faint praise for them or whatever? I do think there are some inside the organization that came into this season, Zach, and saying, All right, if we get out of the first round, that makes it a successful season. But the way that this has all come together and the fact that As the season progresses, they can get even better and better because their projected starting five has only played a grand total of 225 minutes together, and we're past the 50-game mark. So there's a belief that with more time together, more reps, more familiarity, they can grow organically with that group, right? Evan Mobley is going to get more of an understanding of how he fits Um, Now that he's back and going to be off a minute restriction when they come back from the all-star break, Darius Garland's not going to have a minute restriction either. And for all the questions about Darius and Donovan together and how it looks from time to time, like with them both on the court in 485 total minutes, they've got a 9.5 net rating, which as a pairing is better than Fox and Sabonis. It's better than uh, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. 
It's better than Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. It's right in the same realm as Damian Lillard and Giannis. It's in the same realm as Jamal Murray and Jokic. So those guys have been successful together, and I think they're going to continue to get better and better as the season goes on. So I guess like what I'm saying is based on the way that they've played and based on the ceiling that they still believe that they have, I think expectations have shifted. And I think it's okay that they have. Like a lot of the weaknesses that showed up in that first round playoff series against the Knicks were addressed. They've got more shooting. They're taking more threes. Um, They learned a lot in terms of like how to navigate those certain situations of of playoff level physicality and playoff level intensity. Um, They've handled those environments where they're in tight games in the fourth quarter a little bit better. They're 33 and three this year, Zach, when taking a lead into the fourth quarter. So they're finishing, they're closing, they're understanding those kinds of things. Um, And their bench, which was a huge weak point last year, they had the 28th scoring bench in the entire NBA a year ago. This year, their top half of the league. So a lot of the issues that popped up in that series against the Knicks, they feel like they remedied based on their personnel and they remedied based on the styles that they can play at both ends of the floor. And I think there are reasons to believe that, are they Boston? No, like Boston's on a completely different level. But with the situation with Embiid and everything that's gone on in Milwaukee this year and the questions about the Bucks, like why can't we? make a deep run in the playoffs. That's the way that the Cavs are thinking. I mean, over the last 20 games, and you can talk about the schedule, but over the last 20 games, they have trailed by less than 250 total minutes. That's an insane level of dominance for a long stretch of time. Everything about their resume points to them being a legitimate contender. They, they're just outclassing a lot of teams. And I don't disagree. I guess, I guess here's what I'm saying. Let's say they get by the first round. Yep. In a second-round series, I'm not picking them over Boston, assuming everyone's healthy. Um, I still I, – I got to see how the Bucks look over the next 25 games. But I, sure. I still just would default to they have Giannis and Dame and some championship pedigree. I, yeah. I, you know, the Knicks, again, fully healthy based on what they did to the Cavs last year. If they're rolling in the last 20 games and Anobi looks healthy, Randall looks healthy, I think I'd probably mm-hmm. have the Cavs as slight underdogs in that series. Philly's a total wild card because I'm just not sure it's realistic to expect we see like fully optimized Philadelphia with Embiid. Uh, if we do, that's a scary matchup for Cleveland too. And that's okay. Like that, like you've got to be okay right. with... 2-2 in the second round against the Bucks. We lose a nail-biter at home in Game 5, and they yeah. close it out in Game 6. Not a failure. Not a failure. Right. Especially not when you have Dean Wade for all your accounting needs. Dean Wade for all your accounting needs. Dean Wade! Dean Wade! Chris Fedor, uh, any parting thoughts on the Cleveland Cavaliers? I think the only thing that I would add, Zach, and, and you mentioned Jared Allen, Like there was a big shift for him. And you were talking about his level of engagement, his level of involvement. You know, early on in the season, he came into this year saying, I want to be more involved offensively. I've worked on my mid-range game. I've worked on my passing. I feel like he's made some jumpers in in recent games. 50% on mid-range jump shots. That's good enough for somebody like him who finishes with the efficiency that he does around the rim. And at the beginning of the year, Like, it's almost as if the Cavs didn't put their confidence behind him, and it was more Evan Mobley. 
early on, Jared Allen was sixth on the team in total touches per game. Sixth. He was getting as many touches per night as George Niang. Since, you know, Evan Mobley and Darius Garland went down during that stretch, Jarrett became number third in the offensive hierarchy. And he's not somebody who's going to complain about touches or complain about minutes or anything along those lines. He doesn't ruffle feathers. He's a low maintenance guy. He's a simple man. But you see a different level of commitment from him. You see a different level of joy from him. And like them giving him the confidence to expand his offensive game during that stretch without Darius and Evan, I think it created this different guy that we're seeing right now. And it's going to be really important, I think, for the Cavs to continue to tap into that because he is like Donovan's their best player. He's probably their most important player for the future. Evan Mobley is probably their most important player. I could probably take the probably away from that one. But like the most indispensable player that they have is Jared Allen. So seeing him with this level of involvement on the offensive end and feeling like he's more of a part of it, I think that has um, unleashed a different a different guy who has been worthy of all star consideration. Well, and he was the one to, to wrap up that he was the one that expressed most openly and most nakedly that the playoffs felt different to the Cavs in a way that they did not expect last year, the pressure, the intensity, and it will be interesting to see how they respond to it this year. If they use that as fuel, like, all right, we've been here. We failed. Guess what? We survived. Everything's okay. Let's go and get it. Let's go and get it. Or if, if they wobble a little bit, I actually expect it's going to be the latter. Like we, we, we failed. We were embarrassed and guess what? We recovered and we're back. Um, it's, it's going to be fun. This is a really good team and a really fun team to watch too. Chris Fedor, Cleveland.com. Thank you for joining us and uh, enjoy, enjoy All-Star. You got it, man. You do the same. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.